Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Nazneen Sagari Ratcliffe returned to the UK after her six-year ordeal in Iran, bringing a spot of good news in an otherwise turbulent week in British foreign policy. We will continue to stand up for our interests, for the freedom and security of our nationals, wherever they are, and for an end to arbitrary detention. But for now, to Nazanin and Anoushe, I am pleased that in just a few hours' time, we will be able to say, welcome home. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. In this episode, we'll be examining the return of Zagari Ratcliffe, which you heard the Foreign Secretary Liz Truss discussing at the top, and how exactly it happened. What deal was struck with Iran? We'll also be looking at Boris Johnson's misfire trip to Saudi Arabia and more sanctions on Russian oligarchs. Political editor George Parker and political and diplomatic correspondent Laura Hughes will explore. And then we'll be having a preview of Rishi Sunak's spring statement next week and ask what exactly is the Chancellor going to do to ease the cost of living crisis and why are expectations being hosed down? Chief political commentator Robert Shrimsley will discuss with special guest Rupert Harrison, a portfolio manager at BlackRock and a former chief advisor to the Treasury. Thank you all for joining the pod. Nazneen Sagari Ratcliffe's imprisonment in Iran came to a happy end this week, where after years of negotiations between the UK and Iran, her safe return came to a head with repayment of a historic debt between the two countries. It marked a positive note for British foreign policy, which otherwise was a little bit disappointing. Boris Johnson travelled to Saudi Arabia and yet returned empty-handed on a deal to unlock more oil supplies. And questions still remain about whether Britain is really going far enough in tackling sanctions against Russia. Russian oligarchs. But Tulip Sadiq, the Labour MP for Hampstead and Kilburn, where the Ratcliffe's live, welcomed her return after years of campaigning. Most importantly, I want to pay tribute to my constituent, Richard Ratcliffe, for his relentless campaigning, but I also think he's really set the bar high for all husbands. (laughs) (laughs) Can I say... (laughs) Can I say... To Nazneen, welcome home after six long years. And can I say to Gabriella, this time, mummy really is coming home. Well, Laura Hughes, welcome back to the pod. Tell us how it all happened, because it all seems to have come to a head rather rapidly and after years of negotiations and a deal that was almost struck last year, but we learned was sidelined by the US. Yes. So it's been six years. And I think the question that most people are asking is why now, how on earth did it take this long for the debt to be paid? And there is no simple answer because the government have never really been entirely open and honest about the sanctions and legal restrictions that supposedly stopped us from paying this debt for a long time. But the politics of this too are really interesting. It was only Jeremy Hunt when he came in as foreign secretary who actually started openly saying the UK is going to pay this debt 
it is legitimate. And that was a line that Liz Truss was very clear on. So it took a long time for us to accept we were going to make this payment. It took a long time for us to accept that the two were linked. And now, obviously, openly, the government will never say that they are. But clearly, these two things have had to happen in parallel. There was a deal, as you mentioned, last year, which involved a Swiss bank account and it involved two prisoners as well as Morad Tabaz, who is a tri-national. He's got a US passport as well as a British passport. And we were really, really close. But at the last minute, the Iranians said, no, we consider Tabaz to be an American. And the Americans said, well, if he's not part of the package, we don't want the deal to go ahead. Again, none of this will ever be confirmed on record by the British government. But that is our understanding of what happened. And then you had a new Iranian government come in last summer and Liz Truss came in as foreign secretary. She used this sort of really discreet meeting that I think all of us journalists missed at the time in September at the United Nations to basically grab her Iranian counterpart. And she said to him, look, my number one priority is getting these guys out. My number two is to pay this debt in parallel. And she said, let's make this a totally bilateral issue between the UK and Iran, i.e. let's forget the Americans in this whole process. I think he was very receptive to that. Both knew in their position, both wanted to get ahead. Liz Truss then also in October held a very discreet meeting with her Omani counterpart, where it was agreed that the Omanis would play a very significant role in, in helping to facilitate this deal, which we might be able to get onto later. But basically, those things happened. And then, of course, the UK government won't cite this, but you've got the global context now of war in Ukraine, oil prices. I think the Iranians believe that now might be a good time to get some, some sort of goodwill from the West and potentially start releasing sanctions on Iran and, and exporting more oil, for example. So as a lot of things have happened, there's no simple answer but it's a kind of combination of lots of different things happening at the same time that enabled this to happen. Well, George Parker, it's great to have you opposite me in the studio this week. Nazneen's return is obviously something of a triumph for the government, because as Laura said, this has been going on for an awful long time. And Boris Johnson was widely criticised when he was Foreign Secretary, and he made some remarks at a Foreign Affairs Select Committee hearing that was seen to have made the situation worse with Nazneen Zaghari Radcliffe. But obviously, he's delighted she's back, but also Liz Truss is delighted. And as Laura said, she was seen to have changed the dynamic of these negotiations, won a lot of plaudits, including from Tulip Sadiq, the Labour MP we heard at the top there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Boris Johnson was criticised heavily at the time for those comments of the Select Committee, suggesting that Nazanin Sagari Radcliffe was in some way involved in lecturing in journalism. It just came out of the blue and uh, that exacerbated the situation. But I think it's important that we shouldn't shift responsibility of this onto British politicians. It was the Iranians, ultimately, who were using foreign nationals as, effectively, as hostages as part of an international power play. On the other side of it, as Laura was saying, you know, there was this debt. Britain has recognised it was it was something which had to be paid. And I think Liz Truss does deserve some of the credit for unlocking the deal. She's criticised for lots of things, but you can't criticise her for a lack of energy and the fact that she brings a personal touch to diplomacy. And I think that does actually count. You know, someone like Dominic Raab wasn't someone who sort of deployed the soft charms in the way that Liz Truss does. And Liz Truss is someone who actually wants to get things done in the Foreign Office. So I think she deserves some of the praise that she was given. But ultimately, you know, as Laura was outlining, the stars aligned in lots of different ways. The, the nuclear deal was coming into back into focus again as well. 
And the fact that Liz Truss was able to sort of bring all these things together and she went to Washington last week to basically flag up what she was intending to do, that this was a bilateral issue, squared off the Americans and yeah, ended up with the happy conclusion of the saga this week. But obviously this has been criticised by the Americans and Mike Pompeo, George, the former Secretary of State, came out and said this was a really bad situation. This may be because, as Laura said, the US was cut out of this. Yes, and Laura mentioned the, the tri-national hostages still there and the Americans thought that he was going to come back at the same time as the other two. Uh, and there is frustration, it's some frustration in America, particularly as expressed by the former Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, who has called this blood money. He thinks the money will ultimately end up in the hands of an Iranian government which we use to launch terror attacks against Western interests. We're told by Downing Street that there is a monitoring regime in place to make sure that the money is held by an international bank and it's only used for humanitarian purposes. But they won't say what this monitoring operation is, who's involved in it. I think there's a lot fair amount of scepticism as expressed by Mike Pompeo this week. Now, Laura, if we contrast that foreign policy triumph with the Prime Minister's trip to Saudi Arabia. And this happened as Saudi Arabia executed 81 people on one day this week. And this was raised with the Prime Minister before he went off on that trip. I've raised all those issues uh, many, many times over the past since I was uh, Foreign Secretary and beyond, and I'll raise them all again uh, today. Uh, but we have to, we have long, long standing relationships with uh, this part of the world. And we need to recognise the, the very important relationship that we have. Well, you could say, Laura, that that realpolitik works if you get something, but Boris Johnson got nothing. No, exactly. And the argument that the UK government always makes sort of privately is that it's better to be in the room with these people that we disagree with than to not be in the room at all. And obviously this comes in the, in the context of the UK and Boris Johnson announcing that we are going to phase out Russian oil imports by the end of the year. Where are we going to get our oil from? And one thing that the government's clearly looking at is trying to encourage the Middle East to allow more of its oil and more of its gas to flow to the West. And Saudi Arabia is the biggest exporter of oil. But the Prime Minister came back empty-handed. And there's a lot of pressure on him as, you know, petrol, gas, oil prices are going up in the UK to do something and to seem to do something quickly. But there was an irony too. You had Liz Truss speaking only last week when she visited America about the UK ending its dependencies on these dodgy countries like Russia. And, and here we are seemingly looking to do business with a country that executed 81 people last week. So this is the reality of, of politics. This is the reality of this sort of potential energy crisis and Boris Johnson desperate to keep the lights on in, in Britain. But Labour were clearly very, very quick to point out the fact that we seem to be hopping straight into bed with another dictator. And really, we shouldn't be doing that at a time that we are trying to take an international lead on standing up to Putin. Indeed. And Keir Starmer was very critical when he spoke to reporters this week. What we need at the moment and what the last few weeks and months have taught us is that we need to be less reliant on energy from abroad. So going from one dictator to another dictator, effectively cap in hand, is not an energy strategy. Um, and so whilst, of course, we all want you know, the prices to come down, there is a crisis. 
George, when you hear those words, it's it's hard to not say that Kistama had a point there, that Boris Johnson was desperately trying to get something. He went, for reasons that no one in Whitehall can particularly understand, didn't come back with anything. And we're exactly where we were on energy security at the beginning of the week, which is this potential disruption from phasing out Russian oil, but not really having an alternative. Yes, I mean, Boris Johnson tells people in Whitehall that he has a good relationship with Mohammed bin Salman. It's something he's proud of. And of course, relations between the United States and Saudi Arabia have been strained. So he saw himself as some sort of intermediary here between the West and Saudi Arabia. Whether having good relations with the leader of a regime which executes people and has journalists chopped up in foreign cities is necessarily a good thing, is we'll leave the listeners to decide. But yes, he, he went there at a time of high risk for him, you mentioned 81 people had been executed last weekend. Another lot of people were executed while he was out there or they they announced they were going to do that. So plainly, the Saudis weren't paying a great deal of attention to his entreaties on human rights. I think Boris Johnson, apart from trying to persuade with little effect the Saudis to pump more oil, he was also hoping to announce or get an agreement on Saudi investment into British renewable energy. This is particularly timely, of course, because the government's about to publish a new energy strategy paper next week in which green energy and nuclear energy will be at its heart. But unfortunately, he didn't get that over the line either. And so it ended up being rather a futile mission diplomatically, but also quite damaging from a British point of view to be going over there on bended knee to a regime and then coming back with nothing at all. Now, moving on to the question of Russian influence in London, Laura, the UK has tried to move harder and faster on sanctions with the introduction of the Economic Crime Bill. It was said that when the UK left the EU, this would be an example of how it could move faster on sanctioning individuals and freezing their assets. But in fact, it's been rather slow. And the introduction of this bill was trying to bring the UK at the forefront of this. Has it worked? I think the UK is now seen in a much better place because what that legislation effectively allowed us to do was to match and and copy and paste lists produced by the EU and the US and basically sanction exactly the same people. The the UK, you know, will, will also keep pointing to the fact that we've taken a lead on other sanctions and that those other sanctions against banks, for example, in the long term may be more effective at hitting Putin where he hurts more so than individuals. But these individuals are incredibly high profile and they send a signal. And I think that's why they're so important. It was also, it's interesting to note that the UK actually went first in sanctioning Roman Abramovich. The EU announced that they too would sanction him this week. So government would argue that the EU are following us there. But look, clearly we were lagging behind. And a large reason for that is we used to be you know, in lockstep with the EU when it came to this. When we left, we had all this new legislation. That legislation had never been used really effectively before. The reason why this legislation was pushed through so very, very quickly is because a lot of people were saying, why on earth are we lagging behind the EU? The whole point of Brexit was that we would be free to act on our own and act faster and quicker. Well, we know, George, that Michael Gove has been putting forward these ideas to seize mansions from Russian oligarchs and use them to house refugees, because we also saw this week the announcement of the Homes for Ukraine scheme, which has had an incredible response from the British public, that it was announced at 6.30 on Monday, and by the end of that evening, I think it was over 50,000 people had signed up, and that's gone, I think, over 100,000 now, which I think goes beyond the expectations of the governments. Now, on that mansion-seizing plan, it sounds like the Department 
Department for Leveling Up and Local Communities and Housing has got a little bit stuck in legal issues here. And one does have to wonder if Michael Gove put this idea forward to get some good headlines, realising maybe it wouldn't go down too well practically. But on the other side, they have had great success with this visa scheme. I think Michael Gove could see the attractiveness of the headlines surrounding sort of seizing Mayfair mansions and putting up desperate people in these exotic locations with the fine trappings inside. But I think, as you say, they've hit a bit of a legal snag on that. And I think in the end, they had to clarify that even, I suspect, in the slightly unlikely event this scheme is pressed ahead, this will be a temporary measure. It wouldn't be a question of confiscating these mansions, but just simply using them for a better purpose. Whether that actually happens, I'm slightly sceptical. But as you say, Seb, the really bright news about this has been, been the phenomenal response to the British public to the idea of providing shelter to Ukrainian refugees. And, you know, Boris Johnson's been praising the British public for that. I think what it shows you, though, is the gap between generosity of spirit of the British people and the apparent generosity of spirit, or at least the bureaucratic competence of the Home Office to display some humanity in terms of its initial response to the refugee crisis. And, um, you know, the government should in its actions, be reflecting the sentiment of the British people. And that hasn't happened over the last few weeks. And finally, Laura, what's the sense in Whitehall and in the Foreign Office about the state of the Ukraine crisis? That I think we heard some briefings from Western intelligence officials this week that they thought Kiev might not actually fall to the Putin regime. And we know the UK is again still been supplying more weapons, has been following it very closely. But again, it's sort of just in a situation of just dragging on with those awful images coming out of Ukraine and that shows that really just a series of dreadful disasters that seem to constitute war crimes. Definitely on Western officials briefing behind the scenes that they don't think Putin is advancing in the way that he would have hoped and they're definitely not having the successes that they might have liked, which I think is why we're seeing these really terrifying kind of attacks from the sky, basically. And there have been a kind of series, I think, of sort of bad moments for Putin this week as well. It was pretty extraordinary to see that broadcaster crash into into a live studio and protest against the war. And actually, she hasn't faced serious sanctions because I think Putin realised it was all so public and and it could get back to the Russian people. But clearly, it, it remains incredibly serious and everyone is watching and waiting to see what he does next. Laura and George, thank you very much. Rishi Sunak will take centre stage next Wednesday to deliver his spring budget, sorry, his spring statement, as the Treasury insists on calling it. Usually, this is one of the big fiscal events of the year, but expectations are being dampened about exactly how much the Chancellor is going to do. There's no doubt this is a very tricky moment for Sunak. Inflation and interest rates are rising. The cost of living crisis is worsening, affecting petrol, food prices and all manner of goods. And that's before considering the impact of the war in Ukraine. Yet Sunak told the House of Commons this week the government does have plans to lessen the impact on ordinary people. The government, of course, recognises that inflation is rising and is closely monitoring the situation together with the Bank of England. Uh, We are also putting in place policies to help families meet the rising cost of living. Well, Robert Shrimsley, are they putting in plans to help families meet the rising cost of living, as the Chancellor put it? Because we know these challenges are huge, the political pressure is significant, yet the general sense that I picked up from the Treasury is they're trying to really dampen down expectations. Why is that? Well, I mean, obviously, when he refers to the plans to help people with the cost of living, I think this is a reference back to the measures that were introduced a few weeks ago to help people with the first tranche of rising energy bills. 
I think the first thing to say, Rishi Sunak is really very committed to the idea that the spring statement should be quite a small event. He believes in one budget a year. It's part of his general instinct about how the Treasury should be run. And he has seen this statement as being a tidying exercise, a foreshadowing exercise, setting out ideas that could then be implemented in the budget later in the year. And we'll see this some of his thoughts on investment and supporting investment and tax credits for research and development and such like. He has believed in this being quite a small-scale event, and I think that remains his instinct. But obviously, he is awash with political problems at the moment. You've touched on some of them, inflation, particularly energy bills. We've got the, the unknown costs of the Ukraine crisis. We can see the, the pressure, for it, obviously, in rising defence costs, extra expenditure there, and the pressure to protect consumers possibly from rising fuel costs. There'll be a lot, there's a lot of pressure to cut fuel duties. The Treasury's instinct, and he's raising a lot of money in tax, and a lot of that money, those taxes are kicking in in April. There's the freezing of income tax thresholds and so on. The Treasury's general instinct is to grab in as much money as it can when it has the opportunity, then push some of it back out, the political instinct, as you get close to the election. And I think that was the conservative instinct, but there is going to be pressure, and he's going to feel the pressure all year to start helping people. So the question, I think, is whether a fairly limited event, whether that line can hold for very long. Well, Rupert Harrison, thank you very much for joining. It's been a while. Welcome back to the podcast. Now, casting your back to your Treasury days, do you think this overall approach of sort of wait and see is the correct one? Because obviously there are these huge challenges, but where are we at in the kind of fiscal cycle? Is this a moment where you would be doing big things or just trying to keep it steady as she goes? Well, I think Robert's buying some time probably is the right approach. You've got to remember that normally at this point in the economic and the political cycle, this would be the time where all the Treasury's instincts would be prudence, bank, any improvement you can get in the public finances. You've got unemployment very low, growth is at the moment pretty strong, and you probably don't have an election for a couple of years. The problem is you've got this sudden shock. And there is definitely a role for the Treasury to at least smooth the impact of a shock as extreme as this. There's not, in the end, anything the government can do to shield us all permanently from a permanent increase in the cost of gas and energy and food. You know, these are things that the economy will have to absorb, but they are going to have to do something. We've already seen that down payment. The reason that I think he can afford to wait is ironically, probably because of a policy that he instinctively hates, which is the energy price cap, which is this enormous intervention in the household energy market that is forcing the Treasury currently to bail out energy companies. But it is going to buy him some time because we don't yet know what the picture is going to look like come the summer. At about this time last week, prices in international energy markets were looking truly catastrophic, particularly in gas markets. And we were, if those prices had held, we were going to see really, truly extraordinary pass-through into household bills later in the year that the Treasury would have to respond to a week later. And actually, that's come off quite a lot. So that I think the Treasury can point to that and say, look, there's enormous volatility in these markets. We don't know where we're going to be come the summer and the autumn. So for now, let's do a little bit. I agree, fuel duty, maybe a little bit to protect you know, lower earners from, from the national insurance rise, but hold back the big guns until we know what the situation is like in the summer. Well, you mentioned fuel duty there, and that is something Conservative MPs are pretty enthusiastic about cutting. Jake Berry, who represents the Northern Research Group of Backbench Tories, had this to say. Will he not only look at cutting fuel duty, but also look at mileage recovery rates? They have been at 45 pence per mile for over a decade. Now is the time to put them up to 60 at least. 
Robert, do you think it's a given that Sunak will do something on fuel duty now? Because I think it's been frozen for 12 years and obviously the Treasury will be reluctant to cut it because once you cut it, you will almost certainly never get that money back. But if you think that fuel prices are going to be baked in for the longer term at a much higher rate, then maybe there's no other option to it. I think a given is probably a bit stronger than I would go, but I think it's a very, very decent chance that he will act on this. It's got a number of plus sides politically for a Conservative at the moment. First of all, he's got a lot of his own MPs agitating for it. And one of the things that's really happening, you've noticed this in the, specifically in the last few weeks, so it's been going on for longer, is the pushback against the net zero targets, against the climate change agenda and an effort by the top of government, by the prime minister, by the business sector to hold the line in a variety of areas. But I think part of this is accepting where they're going to have to give a bit to get their MPs off their back on this issue. And they're particularly concerned about, you know, Nigel Farage's new venture into climate change. It's not they really think there's a massive vote for a, an anti-net zero agenda party, but he's become very good at rattling Tory cages and agitating those already of a similar mindset. So I think showing something along this line is going to be necessary for him. So yeah, I, I would bet on it. I, would, I wouldn't quite say it was a given. And Rupert, what do you think is in the, the, sort of the policy menu of things they could do now that will just try and give that, even if it's on economics and a political sense, the government is trying to ease the cost of living? Could it be, as we were just discussing, fuel duty? Could it be income tax thresholds? Could it be something on national insurance? I think fuel duty is absolutely a given. He has to do something. I think the choice is just how big it is. I mean, the economics... What would you reckon? Like, how, what would be big? Well, I think 5p would be big. I mean, I'd be surprised if it was that much. It's, I mean, one of the problems the Treasury has is this is a very, very big tax. And so making relatively small changes is extremely expensive. And the economics of fuel duty is a bit mixed. I mean, frankly, you know, one of the things that we need to do in response to this energy shock is reduce consumption, drive more fuel efficient cars, you know, increase the transition away from hydrocarbons, all of those things. And cutting tax on fuel duty slightly goes against that. You can make an argument that it's probably a good idea to smooth out the inflation impact. So, you know, maybe there's a positive there. But the politics are absolutely slam dunk on fuel duty. You have to do something. I think the interesting thing will be what else? I think the impressive thing from the Treasury's point of view is they have managed to bank the national insurance rise in this very difficult environment. And they've kept number 10 and the Prime Minister on board with that. They'll be pretty happy with that. It's very important, I think, that national insurance rise for the sustainability of the increases in spending we've seen on the NHS and, and potentially on social care. I think that given that you've got a national insurance rise coming down the track, they have to probably do something to protect lower earners from that. And therefore, something in the tax system is probably the most appropriate thing to do there, and probably something around national insurance thresholds. So that's probably the, the way to help lower earners. The Treasury is also under a little bit of pressure on the rating of benefits, which is now going to happen at a rate that is less than what is the current rate of inflation. So high inflation now is going to feed through to up rating of benefits down the track, but it's not going to help people today. I suspect the Treasury will try and hold the line on that at least until, as I said, at least until the summer. You know, if we are facing another very, very chunky increase in household energy bills, and remember, you know, the Treasury is probably counting on the assumption that the next price cap increase is going to be in the autumn. We should be aware that it is possible for the regulator to do an off-cycle increase. If you do get very, very sharp increases in 
wholesale energy prices between now and, say, June. They could surprise the Treasury with a kind of off-cycle summer increase in the cap. Now, we should all hope that doesn't happen because it's going to be bad news for, for the cost of living if it does. But if so, I think the Treasury will then be forced to do something more on people on lower incomes, and that's where the benefit system come in and something through universal credit. But I think probably not for this spring statement. That's almost certainly something you could bank for the full budget later this year, because if your bills do go up at that point... You're just going to have to do something for people on lower incomes. We've got this price cap going up to about £2,000. If you go into the market at the moment, the sort of the best one-year fix you can get is around £4,000. And if we had seen some of the prices from last week translate forward into permanent increases, then we're talking maybe as high as five, six thousand pounds. So these are just not increases that most households can absorb. There has to be a role for the benefit system to do that. And you remember that the Treasury are still a bit punch drunk from the pandemic. You know, they spent incredible sums of money, quite rightly and quite effectively, in my view. But, you know, it's very, very painful for the public finances. So all their instincts are, oh my God, we don't want to be doing that again. Uh, and so, you know, they might in the summer if they have to. I think also Rishi Sunak was very burned by the efforts to end the temporary increase in universal credit and the constant pushback against this. And I think there is a concern about pushing more help down that route. I think it's a measure he's not entirely comfortable with anyway. But the notion of temporary support and the problems of withdrawing it later on is something that that will concern him, which is a pity in a way, because using universal credit is by far and away the best way to help families who are struggling the most with energy bills. The only thing about this spring statement is you've got this national insurance rise. And so there is a specific thing about you know, you're raising tax on some lower earners. And I think he will want to offset that specifically. The interesting thing about the universal credit increase is that I think there was quite a big row in government about how to do the pandemic one. There are quite a few people who are still on the tax credit system. And all those people got a one-off check, effectively. I mean, it wasn't a check, but it was a one-off payment. And no one noticed the fact that that wasn't repeated. But in universal credit, the Treasury wanted to do a big one-off payment. But in the end, they were forced to do this sort of increase in the level. And therefore, they had that big row about cutting it again. I wonder if the Treasury this summer might be able to do just a kind of one-off payment to and, and learn the lesson about how difficult it is to bring these rates back down. Rishi Sunak talked up, I've heard him, uh, accounts of him talking to colleagues and friends, specifying how much better the American system was, where people just got a check in the post and you didn't have the repeat payment. So I think that's very possible. Now, the impact of all this inflation, Rupert, means that the tax receipts are probably going to be, ironically, obviously, due to the fiscal drag, in a much better place. So what does that mean for the overall state of the public finances? It's basically short-term gain, long-term pain. So inflation is a very mixed blessing for the Treasury. It's a bit like, you know, you can get the wrong kind of inflation. It's a bit like the rail system when you get, you know, the wrong kind of snow. Inflation that is generated by kind of rapid wage increases, which we're seeing a little bit, but not in a huge way, that's very good for, for tax receipts because it, it creates that fiscal drag. And of course. People's incomes rise, but the tax thresholds stay the same. Inflation that is like this inflation, a cost shock, is less good because it drives up benefit payments through up rating. And crucially, it's going to hit the macro economy. I mean, the economy is growing pretty strongly at the moment. You know, we are definitely going to see a slowdown across the whole of Europe from this cost shock, energy, also food over the rest of the year. And that will hit tax receipts over a sort of one to two year horizon. So I think we are going to see an improvement. The Treasury would point to the fact that they're still borrowing an awful lot of money. They're still reeling from the cost of the pandemic. And therefore, I think this is going to be an exercise in playing down any idea that there's some kind of secret war chest. Robert, something else we're expecting in the budget, though, is changes to corporation tax. We've reported that on the FT this week. What is the Treasury looking to do there? And what would be the benefit of some kind of reform of the system? 
Well, I think the fundamental issue, something Rishi Sunak has talked about a lot, is what he considers the relative lack of business investment in Britain compared to, to, to other countries. And a feeling that the system hasn't worked to deliver it. Uh, a lot of business, particularly big business, was very excited by his super deduction, which allowed them to write off vast amounts of investment against, I think 140% of the cost of an investment against their corporation tax. That was quite useful as a time-limited measure to bring forward investment. That's due to come to an end. And I think the question is, what kind of investment incentive measures he will put in place instead? And he's certainly looking at different forms of, of capital allowances, other ways to boost investment in research and science because his general sense is that we're not getting it right at the moment. Obviously, having put corporation tax up by 6%, he's looking at ways to offset that for business to get them still investing. And I think we will see quite a lot of announcements around this, not necessarily for immediate impact, but for consultation prior to the budget in the autumn. And finally, Rupert, one thing that Robert wrote about in his column this week is this perpetual sense of crisis that we've lived through. Like we've obviously gone through the Brexit years, which strained the COVID years. And now we've obviously got the Ukraine war as well. It makes policymaking incredibly difficult because you're constantly, as we've just been going through, reacting to events and trying to second guess what's going to happen in a couple of weeks, in a couple of months. How can you deal with that when you're in the Treasury? Because that's what makes this spring statement so particularly difficult because we don't know how long the Ukraine situation is going to last. And as the FT reported on Friday, if there is a full oil and gas embargo, that's kind of a huge impact on the UK's economy and also the world economy as well in terms of increasing that inflation, taking a knockoff global global GDP as well. So if you're sitting in the Chancellor's shoes, how do you how do you deal with that? It has been an incredible series of crises. And the Treasury, I have to say, I think I have done a pretty impressive job over the last few years, particularly through the pandemic. But I think all the instinct now will be to try and hold the line, try and stick to some kind of medium term anchor, and then respond when you absolutely have to. And I think that's why this sort of wait and see benefit of waiting to the summer really applies. To the point about corporation tax, one of the impacts that these series of crises have had is just to raise the level of uncertainty that business is facing. And one of the problems is that we know that uncertainty is an absolute killer for investment. There's limits to what policy can do. If you're a business, the fact that you know that the government has tweaked your tax incentives a little bit to invest for better or for worse. It's not going to fundamentally change. If you think the world might, you know, might come to an end, uh, or if you think the economy might enter recession, those are much bigger considerations. So it it does also limit the power that policy has over the economy. You're more and more at the mercy of events. The other point which I wanted to make when when I wrote the column was that the extent to which the crisis mode, and and I agree the Treasury has had fairly good crises, is that it just stops everything else. So if you look at all of the other agendas that this you know, and, and previous governments have had, they're just completely derailed by events utterly out with their control. If you think about some of the broader agendas that this government was elected upon, not merely the end to austerity and the reinvestment in public services, but the levelling up agenda, the skills agenda, the putting more money into science and research and development agenda, all of these things are being curbed and inhibited and you know, when the levelling up white paper came out, there was no extra funding to support that. If you look at the net zero agenda, vast chunks of this, the weight of this are being expected to be carried by the private sector rather than the state. So it just limits their room for manoeuvre on the wider strategic goals, it makes government much more hand to mouth, much more day to day. And then you obviously have to factor in the political pressure to deliver tax cuts before the next election and sufficiently early before the next election to have any impact on voters. So the crisis management's okay, but all of the other goals go out the window. 
on the net zero agenda in particular, with the right policy framework, you can actually incentivize investment even through uncertainty. So we saw through after 2010, the coalition put in place incentives for renewables rollout, and you saw the fastest renewables rollout of any major economy. And that was through the Eurozone crisis, through the whole debate around austerity. And so I think that on that agenda in particular, with the right regulatory framework, you can actually get something done even in this environment. And I think that's why renewables are now so affordable and the cheapest form of energy within the UK. Robert and Rupert, thank you very much for joining us. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, then we'd recommend subscribing. You know where to find us, all the usual channels you receive your podcast. The episodes will drop in your phone every Saturday morning. We also like positive views and nice ratings. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Howie Shannon. The sound engineers are Breen Turner and Yang Sigsworth. Until next time, we'll be back for a full budget special. Thanks for listening. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.